Stefan Grappelli told me that when he and Django first met and started playing together in between sets at a big hotel in Paris, he said they were basically trying to imitate Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Listeners out there in, in, in podcast land, that is a very important piece of information because if you read the books, people will try to tell you that Django was mostly influenced by Duke Ellington, who's great, and Louis Armstrong, who is, who's great. We love all that. But I've, I've always thought the same thing as you just mentioned. Eddie Lang, Joe Venuti, that's where the guitar and violin thing has its genesis. Welcome, welcome to the Hot Jazz Network podcast. I'm your host, George Cole. On our show today, we have one of the most important musicians in American history. He's a legendary mandolinist and composer, but more important, he's also my friend. He's the creator of dog music, has recorded with Jerry Garcia, The Grateful Dead, Doc Watson, Del McCory, and countless others. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only David Grisman, the man we call dog. Let's take a ride out to Riverside Drive To a place before your mom and dad were alive We'll roll down the block Hey, George, great to be with you here. It's really great to see you, even if it's not in person on the on the little computer screen here. It's always a pleasure. So how are things up there in, in Port Townsend, is it? We're keeping busy here, Port Townsend, Washington, a lovely little seaport village on the Puget Sound. Tracy, my wife, and I live in an old house. It was built in 1885 where we run our little digital recording company, Acoustic Disc. Yeah, well, I, I've been up there after you first made the move. If I remember correctly, we did a, some sextet gigs up in the, yeah, in the did, Northwest. Uh, Vatch on Island, yeah. I've seen Sam is really busy. He's touring, and I can't believe that he's had. Oh, I can believe, but it's incredible the success that he's having with this younger generation approach to dog music. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, he, uh, Sam Grisman Project. They just played in Vash on Island two weekends ago. We went down and sat in with him, and he's got a wonderful little band, four-piece. They sing, they play, they dance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is. Some people are just credible when they do that kind of music, and, and the guys that he's got singing with him, it's just really good. I love what they're doing. I love that they're continuing the, the legacy of your music. I told him he should form a band called Dog Dynasty and just played my stuff. But he's a little smarter than that. He's incorporated with Grateful Dead music and the very rarely heard Bob Dylan tunes. They're all very fine musicians and good singers. Rick Robertson and Aaron Lip and Chris, the drummer. They all sing, they all play many different instruments. And of course, Sam keeps getting better on the upright acoustic bass. And he's playing some electric, too. I don't know where I went wrong with that. You can't really tell your kids very much. <laughs> They're going to yeah. do their own thing, and you, of course you want them to do their own thing. But it's so great that they're both 
playing and, and thriving out in the world and both in the asset column of life. I'm really glad that you could almost wish nothing more. They're out there. They're doing their thing. It's a hard business. I think he's played around 70 gigs so far in the past year. He's out there. He's out there now doing it and against all odds. He decided music is what he wants to do with his life, so I can't really argue with that. Yeah, it's a, it is a hard business when you come to the the financial aspect of it and having a band out there on the road and traveling, you know, traveling yeah. planes, trains, automobiles, hotel rooms, yeah. all of that stuff. It's the, the act of playing music itself is a joy, and I remember all those many rehearsals in, in your living room, and you would tell me or tell the band that, that you really enjoyed that. Once it goes out of the living room or the rehearsal hall, and then you're on the road, then all the some of the problems start. Right. There's so much time and energy taken up not playing, just doing stuff that isn't really fun, sitting in airports, standing on line to rent a car, being in your hotel when they lost your reservation. That's the part you get paid for. Is all the music part is the joy, and then the, the standing in line to get the car. I remember Matt losing his flute. I haven't talked to Matt in a while, but I remember even before I, when I first joined the the Sextet, that he would always. Um, this the stories were legendary of him like leaving behind his flute or the bass flute. Which he went to pick up my car or his car to bring us home from the airport. And he, he drove to my house without me. He denies that story, but I swear it's true. I remember in Boston, this, I actually <laughs> rode with him and his wife and he, he scared me so much. I love Matt. I went to high school with him. We used to jam on the guitar and flute when we were in high school together. Didn't see him for many years, but I rode with him in the car and I just went running into the restaurant in, in Boston. And I, I was literally shaking because of that. Maybe he's like Bruce Lee. He couldn't drive well or, or mm. something like that. It, hey, maybe we should pick another subject. Yeah. That's okay. Matt, when you hear this, we love you. Yeah, we much. love you, Matt. <laughs> Your history is pretty well documented. But I just wanted to go and do what the millennials call a, a deep dive on the roots we want to go all the way up to present day. And if we don't get everything in today, maybe we, there'll be a part two. But I just wanted to start at the beginning. So what was your father's name? My father's name was Samson Grisman. He was 45 when I was, or 47 when I was born. Unfortunately, he passed away when I was 10. He had been a professional trombone player earlier in his life. He instilled in me uh, some practice. He got me started on piano. I remember he just, every time I made a mistake, he'd make me go back to the top. I don't know whether that was good or bad, but I guess can't argue with the results. So his name was Samson, and your mother's name? My mother's name was Fanya, F-A-N-Y-A. Unusual name, but she was an art teacher and also played the piano. Was she Ralph Rinsler's art teacher? Was that yes, she correct? was. In fact, Ralph was my guru. He's an amazing uh, musician, folklorist, Renaissance man who lived four blocks away in Passaic, New Jersey. After I got to know him, he told me that not only was my mom his art teacher, but she brought me into 
his art class when I was two years old and he was 12. What was the atmosphere like in, in the house when you were growing up? Your, your father was a professional trombonist. Where, was there music in the house? I rarely heard him play. When I was a very young, he had a toy store, which was an ideal thing <laughs> for a young kid. And I'll say. Then he had a, like a soda fountain type store. And then he had a hardware store in Tenafly, New Jersey. Tenafly Paint and Hardware. And I have very few memories of him playing the trombone around the house. Most of the music I was listening to was on the radio. I, I heard the explosion of uh, rock and roll in the mid-50s. Do you remember what it was, the first thing that really turned you on that you heard as a... Uh, actually, I do. It must have been in 1949. The first piece of music I remember responding to was Teresa Brewer singing Put Another Nickel in the Nickelodeon All I Want of Love and You and Music. It's interesting because we just released on acoustic disc uh, a project by Jim Queskin, and he sings that song on that project. I used to listen to the radio a lot as a kid, and um, back then they would play the top 50 records on one of the big stations in New York. They'd start at number 50, and over the course of about three or four hours, they'd work their way up to number one. You'd hear a lot of really fantastic things, mostly not in the top 10, you know, like the five satins and Frankie Lyman and the teenagers and Chuck Berry and Elvis and Buddy Holly and little Richard, just some great stuff. It sounds like the radio was your friend rather than listening to your father play right. or like records being played. I remember when LPs came in, I got a a uh, record player, like a console, and I remember my first few albums. I had L- Little Richard, his first album. I had the Chirping Crickets with Buddy Holly. I bought 78s. I had a 78 of Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel. I was in Atlantic City at the age of about 11 or 12. My mom went to a teacher's convention there, and they had a record your own voice for 10 cents. (laughs) I remember recording, singing, um, Don't Be Cruel. And I remember writing on the label, Don't Be Cruel by Cool Dave. So you're growing up, you're listening to the radio, you're able to listen to the birth of rock and roll, the rock and roll explosion in the 50s, not to be confused with the the British invasion. I saw a picture of you on the internet. Of course, I do my internet research. And you're playing with a washtub bassist. And there's a very young dog there with the mandolin, I believe. Do you remember the name of that group? That was called the Garrett Mountain Boys. The Garrett Mountain was in Patterson, New Jersey. It was the closest mountain you could find and i went hiking there as a boy scout that was my first band fred weiss played fiddle and uh, jack scott in that picture he's playing guitar but he was the first one of us to get a banjo we all wanted to be banjo players what was the inspiration for that who was your yeah initially getting back to the rock and roll around 1959 
it more or less disappeared with Elvis went into the army. Chuck Berry, I think, got busted. Buddy Holly got killed. And yeah, they call it the dark ages when all the teen idols appeared. Yeah. And, and we were left with Leslie Gore and uh, some really vapid music uh, yeah. in the late 50s, early 60s. And I, I heard the Kingston Trio and got attracted to that. Shortly after that, met or re-met Ralph Rinsler. There were three of us high school misfits that were interested in folk music. We started going to hear people like Pete Seeger. We started going into New York City and hearing folk music in Washington Square Park. One day, um, Jack Scott came home from New York. We used to get records at Sam Goody's, and he came home with a record called Mountain Music Bluegrass Style. Very excitedly said we had to come over and hear this, Fred Weiss and myself. He dropped the needle on a track called White House Blues by Earl Taylor and the Stony Mountain Boys with a banjo player named Walter Hensley. He played just really fast, amazing Scruggs-style playing, and that more or less changed my life hearing that. Right there, and, right then, wow. Fortunately, Ralph Rinsler was there to guide our listening. You know, he turned us on to the Bill Monroe. He called me up one Sunday afternoon in 1961 and said he was driving down to Maryland to hear Bill Monroe. Did I want to come? Yeah. And uh, of course I did. That was a life-changing experience as well. I kind of had an inside track to the New York folk music scene with Ralph and people like Mike Seeger and John Cohn. I was working in the ShopRite supermarket, which was less than a block from Ralph's house. And I remember Mike Seeger coming in there with the Stanley brothers. We'd listen to the Greenbrier boys, which Ralph was the mandolin player. They were the first bluegrass band in New York City. Went from the ground floor to the penthouse in terms of being exposed to all the right stuff. I was 15 years old when Ralph came back from Shoons, Tennessee, having recorded, uh, rediscovered a banjo player named Clarence Ashley who had made records in the 20s. And his neighbor played guitar on the uh, tapes. Is that Doc Watson? And it was Doc Watson. And Ralph always said that I was the first person that ever said, who's that guitar player? And I love that, I love that Doc story. Watson, there was an organization called the Friends of Old Time Music that was formed by Ralph, John Cohn, and Israel Young, who was the proprietor of the Folklore Center in Greenwich Village. I was going to NYU in 1962 and worked for Israel in the Folklore Center. And I was just immersed in this very vibrant folk music renaissance that was happening at that time. Wow, it's just so fortunate for you to meet Ralph Rinsler and all the events that happened after that. It's all been one big uh, kind of luck, just luck with many um, great musicians such as yourself, it's driven by a love of music. 
the best musicians that I've met are the, are the biggest music lovers. They just love it so much. They're driven to explore. That's the important thing is listening. That's the key ingredient to music. And I've always been a avid music listener, collector. I have 30,003 songs on my iPhone. If I put it on shuffle, I'll be hearing Mozart, the Stanley Brothers, Benny Goodman, Nina Rota, all kinds of stuff. I yeah. was in New York a couple months ago. Saw Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks, the banjo player that he had in his band was this young guy. And he was like a chord on every beat. Just yeah, playing sure. with a plectrum banjo and really driving the band. That is so different than the, uh, the Pete Seeger with the long neck banjo or the uh, Scruggs. Did you know Dick Oxtot? No, who's that? Oh, Dick Oxtot's Golden Age Jazz Band. They they were right in your backyard about 30 or 40 years ago. Dick Oxtot was a plectrum banjo player. In fact, I hired this whole band to play on the soundtrack of Big Bad Mama and probably Capone. They played traditional jazz uh, Dixieland type music. They have up here every year for the past few years music festivals in Port Townsend. One, uh, it was called the Red Hot Strings. A guy named Matt Munisteri. He was a fantastic tenor banjo player. Tyler Jackson from Texas is just, he may be the, the greatest tenor banjo player I've ever heard. And he plays tenor guitar and all that stuff. There was also a really fine guitar player from L.A. I'm trying to think of his name now. A younger guy, not a little younger maybe than you, but not much. And he is, I'm trying to think of the guitar player that he emulates, a guy from the late 30s, Dick McDonough, I think. Alan Roos? Oh, Alan Roos, right. Are we talking about Jonathan Stout? Yeah, that guy. Yeah, I was just listening to some of it this morning. He did a recording of Rose Room recently. Yeah. He's really an acolyte. He plays a lot of Charlie Christian, note for note. Yeah. And also his big hero is Alan Roos. It's it's funny. There, there's different avenues. There's the hot club style, the, the Django, the quintet, right. the hot club of France. There's that style, which is a little on the beat. Then there's the um, the um, Amer American style, which is which comes a little more naturally to me. Being well, an American, I, you're all. I think they're all rooted in Eddie Lang. Stefan Grappelli told me that when he and Django first met and started playing together in between sets at a big hotel in Paris, he said they were basically trying to imitate Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Listeners out there in, in, in podcast land, that is a very important piece of information because if you read the books, people will try to tell you that Django was mostly influenced by Duke Ellington, who's great, and Louis Armstrong, who is, who's great. We love all that. But I've, I've always thought the same thing as you just mentioned. Eddie Lang, Joe Venuti, that's where the guitar and violin thing has its genesis. Eric Schoenberg over at Schoenberg Guitars, he feels it's all been downhill since Eddie Lang. I don't know about that, but, you know, he certainly got the ball rolling in terms of what we call jazz guitar now. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a big fan of, I know you know who this is, maybe some of our listeners don't 
Nick Lucas. Oh, yeah. I met Nick Lucas. He tiptoed through the tulips, recorded one of his pieces with Martin Taylor. I think what was, there was picking on the Pick, string. Picking the guitar, picking the string. Picking the guitar, yeah. I actually met and recorded with Roy Smeck. I don't know enough about Roy Smeck. I know the name. I don't know his you, name. Really? You never heard much of Roy Smeck? Well, he was a multi-instrumentalist. He played banjo, guitar, ukulele. One concept I had that I was never able to realize was getting Roy Smeck and Nick Lucas together because they were contemporaries. Roy Smeck was another very early string virtuoso. He got into like Hawaiian guitar and lap steel and all kinds of stuff. He was quite a character. I put together an, an album of Dave Apollon. I was going to ask you about Dave Apollon. How did you first become uh, aware of him? I discovered Jeffro Burns of Homer and Jeffro, great yeah. pioneer of jazz mandolin and probably its greatest exponent. They made two instrumental records in the early 60s called playing it straight, and it ain't necessarily square. I somehow heard that Jethro Burns was giving lessons at a certain music store in Evanston, Illinois, every Tuesday. This was 1973. I made a cross-country trip, and I planned it so that I would hit Evanston, Illinois on a Tuesday. I called up a few weeks in advance on a Tuesday and reached Jethro and booked a lesson with him. During that lesson, I asked him who he thought the world's greatest mandolin player was, and he said, Dave Apollon. Within the next few months, I found every record I could of Dave Apollon's. And later on, I started a magazine for mandolin enthusiasts called the Mandolin World News. I was seeking out information about Dave Applin and I put a an ad in the Musicians Union newspaper looking for information and one of Dave Applin's sons got in touch with me through him and he actually lived in San Francisco Mike Applin he told me about his mom who lived in Las Vegas where uh, Dave had spent his last years playing at the Desert Inn he had passed away, but I, I made a pilgrimage to Las Vegas and spent a few days there interviewing Mrs. Apollon. A guy named Nick Pearls in New York had a label called Yazoo Records, and he put out a record called String Ragtime. To do this, you gotta know how. <laughs> On this particular record were two cuts of Dave Apollon, so I had met Mrs. Applon, and she actually had some unreleased, privately made recordings of Dave, which she entrusted to me, along with a whole bunch of other material. She didn't know about these records that had been released. She wasn't very well off. I tried to, with my manager, Craig Miller, try to get her some money from this record company. I, I told Nick Pearls. I had all this other material, and he had uh, a lot of Dave's 78 
recordings. He asked me to help him put together an album of Dave Apollon's and he would pay Mrs. Apollon $500. I went to New York. That's when I met Roy Smith and because he was coming over to Nick Pearl's house once a week to record. I don't know what happened to those tapes, but we ended up releasing a, a full album of Dave Apollon on the Yazoo label. Later on, he passed away. Nick Pearls and acquired the rights to that album and augmented it with a whole bunch more material and put out a double CD of Dave Apollon's. Recently, we put out a second CD of all of his choral recordings made in the early 60s. If you want to hear Dave Apollon, it's all on acoustic disc available digitally. I think that's great. I've also really admired that about you. I remember when I started playing in in the sextet, we do all these different types of music. I'd go from like a funky thing to R&B to bluegrass to swing. And really good musicians don't put up those boundaries between this style. And when I met you, I was so busy um, being America's gypsy jazz guitar player. Here I am, I'm recording like that, doing a little TV, doing a little radio. That I had this mindset, that was all I wanted to do. And then I learned from you that, wait a minute, as long as it's you, it's going to have your sound anyway, but why not enjoy and explore all these other types of music? Duke Ellington said, and I agree, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. Um, That's right. Styles are difficult to learn. I think you can really only learn a style by playing with experts in that style. I had the experience of playing with some real experts in bluegrass. For a while, that's what I wanted to do. But I always liked all kinds of music. After a while, some of these other kinds of music started turning up in my composing, which is something that I decided I needed to do because all of my bluegrass mandolin heroes all wrote original mandolin tunes. So I figured that was part of the deal. I started writing quote unquote bluegrass mandolin instrumentals, but after a while they started getting a little different. I got to play with some other kinds of musicians, either on recording sessions or through my travels, met some gypsy jazz players and then got hired to do some movie scores, which led to my collaboration with Stefan Grappelli. I just uh, loved it all and faked my way through a bunch of this stuff. And I don't I consider myself an expert on very much, but I certainly loved and, and was fortunate enough to get to play with some of these great masters of various idioms and realized that the mandolin is a melody instrument. So I understood right from the get-go that if you learned a melody on the mandolin, you were halfway there, not just a bluegrass melody, but any melody. Naima by John Coltrane, Limehouse Blues, and then just kept trying to add to my vocabulary. I always like that about dog music that <clears throat> that incorporates all these different elements to it. I don't know if you've ever tabulated how many tunes you've written, 
but I think that the number's getting up there. And that's what this project Dogworks has been about. I decided to try to compile all of my compositions, at least the ones that got recorded in uh, chronological order of which they were written. In fact, this coming Saturday, we're going to release volume six of this series, and you're on it. I'm so excited about that. we got to put the word out. This Saturday, it's going to drop, people. Volume six. Uh, Download is good for up to about two gigabytes. Basically, I've been making these various volumes of dog works up to about two gigabytes. We're selling it by the pound, but there's about <laughs> 25 tunes on each one. We're up to about 150 compositions. Each volume has a number of recordings that were never issued. I've been producing records since 1963. Since 1990, we've had the acoustic disc label. I always recorded more than I could use. And actually, as we were talking about before we went live on this, you asked me about Grateful Dog, the tune that I wrote with Jerry Garcia that we played in the sextet. And we recorded that just because you could play it so well. I didn't have an expanded version of that tune. And that's on one of these volumes of Dog Works. It was also so fun to play that song live. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, that you asked me this riddle once. Who, who wrote which part of the song? You and Jerry. And right. I believe the answer is the part that sounds more like the Grateful Dead or Jerry, you wrote. And then the, the other part, um, Jerry wrote, that sounds more that's like true. it. That's true. That's true. The first day we got together after not playing a note for about 12 or 13 years, Jerry came over my house and said, I know what we need to do. We need to make a record so that we'll have an excuse to get together. So I said, wow, I just built a studio and I just started a record label. And he said, great, we'll do it for you. We went downstairs and I set up some microphones, called an engineer. And the rest is history. That tune just came out, that first session, as well as Dogs, Waltz, and Arabia. They all were a celebration of our reunion. What was the genesis of the acoustic disc label? Did you just get tired of getting ripped off or not owning your masters? Or what drove that? That's another sort of confluence of just luck, really. I had been on Warner Brothers, and they had a big purge in which they dropped 80 artists. Imagine even having 80 artists to drop. I still had in my contract one more record. I said, if you want to drop me, pay me for this record. And they said, if we pay you, we'll take the record. And then I made a record which was called Acousticity. I added drums, not only drums, but the great Hal Blaine. I went as far as I could commercially, so to speak, but they still didn't want to put the record out. They said, if you make us put this out, we'll kill it. So I had to find another label and it took a year. I ended up on MCA. I had a two or three record deal there and and I had an opportunity to tour with uh, the great Sven Asmussen, the 
great jazz violin player from Denmark, who was another one of my heroes. As I did with uh, Stefan Grappelli, I recorded uh, a week-long gig at uh, a club called Fat Tuesdays in New York and did some studio recordings and put together an album. MCA agreed to put it out, but they put a clause in the contract that if it didn't sell 25,000 copies in nine months, they could drop me. I was ready to make my next album. They kept stalling. And finally, Craig, my manager, told me that they say that the Sven Asmussen record only sold 19,000 copies. They want to drop you, but they'll give you a few weeks if you want to make a demo of the tunes you're going to record, they won't drop you until they hear that. You can imagine what I had Craig tell them. It can be symbolized by one finger. I was ready to record an album, and I didn't have a record label. At the same time, two friends of mine, Artie and Harriet Rose, had decided to move from New York to the Bay Area and start a business. This is just when CDs were coming in around 1989. They thought they would open up a CD shop. I was helping them look into that. But we realized very soon that there was no way to really compete with Tower Records having a mom-and-pop CD store. Around the same time, I had been recording some of my earlier records at a studio in Berkeley called 1750 Arch Studios. They had closed down. They had some really good equipment there that went into storage. My friend Bob Shoemaker had been one of the engineers there. He kept telling me, you need to build a studio and I, I can make it easy for you to obtain this equipment. So around 1989, I built a studio in my garage I built a studio. I was without a record label. I had two friends that wanted to start a business. <laughs> so, it, all, it all came together. It all came together, and we started Acoustic Disc. I made that record that I was ready to make. It's called Dog 90. It's ACD number one, and it got nominated for a Grammy. Along about that same time, Jerry Garcia walked in the door and suggested we make a record. So, boom, I had Jerry on my label, and the second release was Garcia Grisman. Of course, that sold really well relative to the first one, and it also got nominated for a Grammy. So we were off to a good start. Was there any difficulty with him being already in the Grateful Dead and signed to a record deal with them? It was the easiest record deal I ever made with anybody. It was like a handshake. Ultimately, we had paperwork done. Maybe some of his lawyers were not that excited. I don't know, but it was never a problem with that. I guess that was the Grateful Dead, and Jerry had control of his own what whatever he did we just kept recording it wasn't like a regular 
recording project where you you have a deadline and a list of songs. We just got together over the course of four or five years and did about 44 recording sessions. God, thank God for this, because and, where else will you hear Jerry? Um, obviously, you're on it. That's some really good Jerry right there. Yeah. It's, it's not in the Grateful Dead. It's acoustic. You, you told me a great story. I, I hope I don't bollocks this up, that that um, Jerry always liked to have his guitar plugged in, but you um, you also insisted on putting a mic on it, and so you would just use that signal in the recordings? Actually, I took it further than that. He had, a, I think it was an Alvarez guitar that would plug in. He also later he started using vintage Martins and Gibsons, but every night when he'd leave, I'd race that track. It wasn't a very good... Um, pick up on that thing it was distorted those are great recordings and everybody loves that and it's just it's like you um, did a a public serv service for the world it's just like some real jerry playing a, on an acoustic instrument and playing with you it's such a amazing thing that well, that got to happen the recording itself was very um well done uh had a great engineer dave dennison who really captured jerry's voice on an old Sony C38B microphone. It's very exposed, no special effects. Jerry had a, a very warm, there was something about his voice. I love his singing. His legend has been gone for so many years now. I wish to heaven I would have got to meet him because by all accounts, he was a, a great guy. I he know. was just a wonderful human being, just the most generous guy I'd ever wanted to meet and humble. He didn't really think much of himself. He really devoted himself to making other people feel good. And really. it re resonates many years after his passing that the legend grows. New generations of people, um, as they are with your music, but um, Jerry and, and, and the dead and company still touring, still playing stadiums. It, it seems like it's not going to stop the appreciation of his guitar playing. I realize that Jerry's music particularly the music he made with you and the Grateful Dead. These are two very different things. Well, Jerry and I, we met in 1964 at a Bill Monroe show. That's the legend. You guys and were so love a bluegrass. We had together. very similar tastes in music. These sessions, I'd think of a tune and he'd immediately know it or vice versa. It was a very comfortable thing. We just think of tunes and do them. I had this idea to make a kid's album. Because I thought Jerry was such a paternal figure. And um, there were so many great traditional folk children's songs. The New Lost City Ramblers, there were a, a group that influenced both Jerry and I, had made a 10-inch record for folkways called Old Timey Songs for Children. That was the initial inspiration for me to think of that. At first, Jerry didn't want to do that at all. He would just call me out of the blue and, and say, hey, I'm coming over. It was never really planned. So it, that particular day was pouring rain. A friend of mine, Bernard Glansby, was uh, hanging out. And I said, hey, Bernard, can you go find a book of children's songs? He went to this music store in Northgate and came back with a Big book is 2,000 children's songs. 
I said, hey, Jerry, I've just got this book. You want to try a few of these? And, oh, here's Freight Train. Oh, yeah, I know Freight Train. And boom, we recorded Freight Train in 10 minutes. That album is so, so important to so many people. I think Jerry um, being able to come over to your place and say, I'm coming over to get away from the circus that was the Grateful Dead and just to, to be with a friend and recording this wonderful acoustic music. I think it probably brought him a, a great deal of joy and it brings yeah. listeners joy to this day. I, I, I bet it was a real safe space, a respite for him from the world of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, he never really was comfortable with his celebrity. He was just a regular guy, thought of himself as that. We'd come over and we just enjoyed uh, playing and hanging out, but it was disciplined enough so that we, oh, let's do that again. I was... The perfectionist and Jerry was the off-the-cuff, loose guy. But I think we kind of reversed those roles a little bit when we got together. I tried to become looser, and I think he became a little more perfectionist. It was just a very comfortable situation. The recordings are great, but the the live show, I've seen the videos. I didn't get to attend any of those um live shows but the the stuff at the warfield mm -hmm. really great interplay the audience was just going nuts that that was a, a wonderful time yeah uh, i'm glad we got a chance to get back together we formed the bluegrass band in 1973 old in the way and then we went off and did our own things for over a dozen years it's just a blessing that we got a chance to get back together and revisit a lot of things from our musical adolescence. Old and in the way, what was the, the genesis of that? What came first, the song or the band? The band came uh, first. I moved to California around late 1969. One of the first people I got in touch with was Jerry, and I had been out on a visit a little bit before that and had heard about a softball game between the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane huh. in Fairfax, California. I went there. Jerry told me they were making a record and he wanted me to play some mandolin parts. Could I come to the studio next day? And I did. And that turned out to be American Beauty. And what the songs for our listeners in case they don't know? Two of their least popular songs, Friend of the Devil and Ripple. <laughs> the, the two most popular songs. Yeah. That's my, years before I met you, that was always my favorite dead. It was those Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. I like those. When I moved to California and got in touch with Jerry, I was living in Stinson Beach. And within six months or a year, Jerry moved there. And then Peter Rowan came out, and he moved there. Peter had never met Jerry, so one day I took him up to Jerry's house. He lived at pretty much the top of the hill there. We just started playing bluegrass in his living room. Peter had been a bluegrass boy with Bill Monroe. I had a career in bluegrass music playing with Red Allen. I had played a little bit with Bill Monroe. 
it sounded good. And Jerry said, Hey, I can get us gigs, man. And I get it <laughs> before we knew it. We were playing little clubs in Marin County. Jerry, I think came up with that name of that band, Olden in the Way. So I was thinking we should have a song called Olden in the Way. And there actually were a couple of songs. There was a Charlie Poole song called Old and Only in the Way. Okay. And then Stanley Brothers had a song called Old and in the Way, but it was like a recitation. Carter Stanley occasionally would do these songs where he would just talk. I thought neither one of these was the right song, so I wrote my one and only song that had words. I guess I could relate to it. Somebody being old and in the way, even though you guys were pretty young at that point when you wrote that. And how did Vassar come into the? We just started playing these gigs locally. We started just a four piece without a fiddle. There was a guy named Brian Price, I think, who played a few gigs. And John Hartford actually flew up from LA and played a gig with us at the boarding house. Richard Green, who had been in Bill Monroe's band with Peter Rowan. We were friends. He started playing with us. He was from L.A., but he'd come up for gigs. This was all in 1973 and got to the summer, and Jerry booked five dates on the East Coast. Richard Green announced that he couldn't do that because he was forming a band of his own. We were sitting around trying to think of a fiddle player. I don't think any of us knew Vassar. But Peter Rowan said, I have Vassar Clement's phone number. Vassar was a legendary, fantastic bluegrass fiddle player that made some classic recordings with Bill Monroe and Jim and Jesse. More recently, at that time, with the Earl Scruggs Review. Anyhow, we called up Vassar Clements and hired him over the phone. These were big-time gigs, and we met Vassar the day before the first gig in Boston, Massachusetts. While waiting for him, I wrote a tune that I later called Waiting on Vassar. I get inspired by just being around great musicians. You know, I've written a lot of tunes just because they were there. You guys are all, like, long-haired California boys. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, then, and so Vassar, I imagine, is a little different. But from my understanding of it, there was no problem. And there was no problem. In fact, it, I think we picked him up at the airport one time. There was a billboard, I think, in San Francisco with Jerry's picture on it. Vassar said, hey, that looks like you. <laughs> Vassar was the nicest guy. He just loved playing with us. For one thing, we, we were like, just blown away by him, by his playing. He was arguably at the height of his powers. He was just playing at the highest level of bluegrass fiddle playing you could imagine. He's one of the architects of bluegrass. There was nobody like him. He inspired us greatly every time we'd, we'd play. I guess he was maybe 10 years older than us. It just was a perfect match. It didn't last that long because I think, looking back on it, I realized Jerry would have loved to keep that going for decades. I guess I had this other thing inside me that was wanting to come out, which was my own music. 
I realized that Jerry, that all these people were showing up because of Jerry, which was a good thing, but I felt like I had already played bluegrass. I, I thought it was regressive. <laughs> My son Monroe, when he was in high school, wrote a song called Young and Dumb Forever. And when you're, I guess I was 28 years old and wanting to do my own thing. I can I can see that. I could be wrong on this, but the legend of Old and in the Way, the record came out after the band was known. Oh, yeah. Right. The re there was no record. We did make an attempt to do a studio album. Mickey Hart had a studio in a barn in where he lived in Petaluma. We spent a couple of days in there. I didn't feel like that it was good enough. And I think Jerry, for a variety of reasons, we just stopped doing it. You know, the dead was really exploding all over the place. Peter Rowan, he was embarking on his... I guess we all wanted to do our own thing, which is a natural process. It just petered out, more or less. We didn't... Uh, see each other for over a dozen years and then one day we were both asked to play on a pete sears record we didn't play together but we were both there and we had a long talk shortly after that we got together and it was really a kind of joyous reunion where we got to revisit all these songs and styles that we had been interested in for years, from the New Lost City Ramblers to A.L. Lloyd and Ewan McCall to Miles Davis and Milt Jackson. You know? Wow, you guys liked a lot of music. Yeah, we, broad we were in all kinds of stuff, and we got a chance to do it. One day I called up Jim Kerwin and Joe Craven because we decided we could use a rhythm section on some of this stuff and started happening. Back to the early days, just a little bit. Yeah. Mule Skinner or Earth Opera? Which came first? Oh, Earth Opera. Earth Opera was 1967-68. Around 1965-66, Peter Rowan and I were both solidly into bluegrass music. I was playing with Red Allen and the Kentuckians, and Peter was playing with uh, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. We decided we were friends and we had known each other for a while. We had planned to form a band together when Peter left Bill Monroe. We met up in the Boston area to form this band. I, I guess Peter, the last thing he wanted to do was bluegrass. The experience of playing with Bill Monroe, who was a pretty strict disciplinarian, Peter, he had written a bunch of songs that weren't bluegrass. I had a brand new baby boy, Monroe Grisman, and we were going to form a band. I thought it would be bluegrass, but it turned out it wasn't going to be bluegrass. Also around that time, we were hearing other things. The Beatles had a big effect. Rock music had undergone another kind of revolution. We worked up a bunch of mostly Peter's new songs. I played mando cello and mandolin, and we worked them up as a duet. 
a good friend of mine, Peter K. Siegel, we were budding record producers together. We both produced our first record together for Folkways in 1963, Red Allen, Frank Wakefield, and the Kentuckians. By 1967, Peter was uh, working as a producer for Electra Records. He got us an audition for Jack Holtzman, the president of Electra Records, in his office. Peter Rowan and myself just played some tunes for him, and he signed us to a record deal. We made a demo, just the two of us, which I wish I had a copy of, because we did about 17 songs. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Jack Holtzman said, you guys need a manager, and he sent us over to this guy, Mort Lewis's office. Mort Lewis had heard this demo, and he said, you guys should just be a duo. I can get you plenty of gigs. And we said, no, we wanted to form a band and reinvent music. And we had all... <laughs> you didn't want to be Simon and Garfunkel, I take it. That's funny you mentioned that, because that's who Mort Lewis ended up managing. They listened, and we didn't. We ultimately put together a band. We made a first album. We had different drummers. We had Billy Mundy, the original drummer for the Mothers of Invention. I think we also had Bernard Purdy on that record. Never heard of him. Just kidding. You never heard of him? No, I'm just kidding. Bernard, Bernard Purdy, and, uh, one of the greats. Anyhow, we found a kindred spirit, a guy named John Negi was a folk musician in Boston. He became the bass player, and we had a keyboard player named Bill Stevenson from Canada and ultimately got our own drummer, Paul Dillon. We made uh, two albums for Electra. The last gig that band played was in the Golden Bear. I went up to San Francisco to visit a friend right after that. That's when I went to that softball game and got on American Beauty. I'd love to pick some of those tunes with you. Yeah, love to do it. And I'm uh, ha glad you got a podcast going here. I hope you get a million listeners for start. Thank you That's so much. And we're, we're looking forward to the release of Dogworks Volume 6. Thank you for taking the time today. It's great to see you. It's great to speak with you. And I very much look forward to the day when we can pick again. Absolutely. And you know, you're good at this. I like speaking with my musical friends or, in, in your case, my old boss. It's funny. It's just the other guys in the band, they'd always like dogs the boss. But I just thought, oh, wow, I've got a cool new friend that likes to play mandolin. It's mostly been real enjoyable because most everybody that's been through my band wanted to be there. They liked the music. That's right. And that was really beneficial. They made it sound good. They all made great contributions. They're all different. I love them all, including yourself. Let's take a ride. This is George Cole with our show wrap-up. I'd like to thank Source Network Production with executive producer Mark Miller and production support from Pokey Huang. Also on this send, tech support from Sheila Swift. Signing off, and we'll see you next time on the Hot Jazz Network podcast. Hey.